Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. I'm speaking with Dr. Courtney Wilson on the faculty of University of North Carolina Eshelman School of Pharmacy and based at the Mountain Area Health Education Center in Asheville. We're discussing the paper for which he is the lead author titled Essential Factors Demonstrating Readiness of Primary Care Practices for Clinical Pharmacy Services. Courtney, the heart of your article involves patient care pharmacists in primary care. Tell us about your own practice in primary care. Well, I'm really fortunate that I have a position that allows me to teach, do research, advocate for our profession, but at the heart of everything we do is patient care. I work with UNC Health Sciences at Mayheck, and we house a large family medicine residency that serves over 23,000 patients in rural Western North Carolina. I work with five other faculty pharmacists, and we provide comprehensive medication management, disease state management services to patients via North Carolina's Collaborative Practice Agreement, which is the clinical pharmacist practitioner. My day-to-day patient care responsibilities include a mixture of face-to-face visits, both independently and with the physician, as well as phone-based visits and population health work. Mm -hmm. Well, I infer that the rationale for your study was that pharmacists who are interested in establishing a primary care practice have many potential targets among physician groups and that those pharmacists would find it helpful to have a consensus-based advice on how to assess their primary care opportunities. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. As the delivery of healthcare moves to a more primary care focus, we're going to need more pharmacists embedded within medical practices. This question came about directly from the work of our PGY2 residency, with the UNC Health Sciences at Mayheck and the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. So for that program, each year we partner with a different independent primary care practice. We embed the resident in that practice with the goal of creating a sustainable position at the end of the residency year. And we wanted to know what characteristics would make a practice ready for the pharmacist. And that's how we got to this question. Okay. You used a modified Delphi process to identify the essential factors for the readiness of primary care practice to include pharmacist clinicians. Uh, Tell us about the panel that participated in this consensus process. Well, we had 15 pharmacists with a state and national reputation in ambulatory care pharmacy who participated in this process. So these pharmacists have experienced developing ambulatory care services across a variety of settings. The majority of the panelists completed residency training. They're board certified in pharmacotherapy or ambulatory care, and they've been practicing for an average of over 15 years, so some real seasoned folks. All but one of our panelists had faculty appointment at a school of pharmacy as well. Mm -hmm. 
This panel rated then uh, 26 practice readiness statements on a four-choice scale, and that scale was not at all necessary or neutral or ideal or absolutely essential. Further, uh, 80% agreement with absolutely essential was considered consensus. Six of the 26 statements met this uh, threshold, half of which were considered foundational and half operational. Tell us about the foundational elements. The foundational elements are full integration into the clinical team, existence of a physician or administrative champion, and openness to team-based care. These three elements really speak to the culture of the practice. So they encompass many of those intangibles that we have found to be so crucial for success. Oftentimes, they're the hardest to move as well, which underlines how important it is to have these characteristics at the outset. What about the operational elements? Yeah, these are more of the the in-the-weeds aspects to consider. So the operational elements included access to the EHR, access to appropriate equipment provided by the clinic, such as computers, printers, point-of-care laboratory supplies, and a patient private room to see patients. If you ask any pharmacist who's uh, seen patients in the primary care setting, we can all kind of tell stories about seeing patient in a closet or, you know, in some sort of small room that is uh, barely considered a room. We've all done it, but it really is important to have that private space to see patients. Right. You say in the article that some Delphi panelists commented on other important readiness factors, such as the type of organizational structure of a medical practice, the legal scope of pharmacist practice in the state, relationship with the school of pharmacy, patient complexity, and experience of physicians in working with clinical pharmacy practitioners. Those all sound like important factors. Could you comment on the potential importance of factors such as those? I was surprised that there was not consensus around the importance of a collaborative practice agreement. You know, to me, this is an extension of full integration into the care team. When we're embedded in primary care, we must be able to actively manage drug therapy. So when we're meeting with these new practices, you know, one of the questions that the providers routinely ask me in one way or the other is, will I have to do extra work when the pharmacist is here? So they are not looking for us to make recommendations that they have to act on. They want us to work as part of the team to optimize the patient's medication regimen. And a robust uh, collaborative practice agreement is important to do that. You know, I also found that the responses around the patient panel and practice size to be very interesting. We had a practice we worked with that was fairly large. It was a five-doctor practice. However, the patients were pretty young and healthy. And while the the sheer number of patients in that practice would suggest that there would be enough work to sustain an embedded pharmacist, the need really wasn't there. And that's where factoring in the complexity of the patients is important as well. A smaller practice whose patients are on multiple medications, have a number of chronic disease states that are not well controlled, or who have a lot of frequent hospitalizations, that would actually probably be a better fit for an embedded pharmacist than a larger practice with a lot of healthy patients. 
You know, the other factor that generated a lot of debate was the importance of the relationship with the School of Pharmacy. So importantly, I will say that, you know, the majority of our panelists did have some level of an appointment to the school. But this, you know, discussion, when I was reading those panelists' responses, it kind of brought up two main factors for me. First, being present is so crucial when starting services. So again, this is the heart of that full integration into the team. Um, so if you're funded by a pharmacy school, you have to find that balance where you're meeting your school requirements while also being fully present at your practice. And that can be really challenging. Second, this implies that you need funding from a school of pharmacy to support your position. So while it's always nice to have, um, I really don't believe that that's essential. So we have enough billing mechanisms now where you can generate enough revenue to support your salary without the School of Pharmacy there funding some of your position. Full disclosure, I do get funding from UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy you know, for my position, but I don't think it's essential to have that to be able to have an embedded pharmacy service in primary care. Mm-hmm. Courtney, do you have any sense as you uh, think about the pharmacist's involvement in primary care practices around the country, the extent to which a school of pharmacy relationship is sort of critical to the existence and sustainability of that practice versus sites where that's not such an important factor? Well, that hits on a really great point, right? So there's a lot of differences across the country in terms of what ambulatory care pharmacy looks like, what our state scope of practices allow. And then importantly, not every region of the country has a pharmacy school around the corner, you know. I'm fortunate to be in an area where I have a school of pharmacy and I have that connection. But if we're looking at you know, the rural parts of the country, for example, you know, they're not going to have a pharmacy school right there to support a position. You know, I think it's really important as we build out some of these models of how to train our workforce to meet the needs of our patients, we have to do that in a way that doesn't rely on school of pharmacy funding um, to be able to create and sustain a position. So working through some of these financial models that we currently have will be really important so that we can get to those patients and have a pharmacist embedded in primary care in parts of the country where there's not a school of pharmacy in that town. Yeah, that makes sense. Were you surprised, Courtney, that factors such as a collaborative practice agreement or complexity of patient didn't rise to the consensus threshold? You know, I, I did. I was surprised by that. I think some of that might um, just be differences in, in where people are practicing. And that speaks to some of those regional differences about pharmacy practice across the country, specifically when I think about the collaborative practice agreement. States have a lot of different scopes of practices and, and ambulatory care services look different across the country. And so in places where you have a more robust uh, collaborative practice agreement available to you by your state, that might um, make your, your practice look different in that practice site. I think some of that comes into play when we think about what pharmacy services look like across the country. Courtney, to, to what extent do you believe that specific reimbursement for pharmacist patient care services is a readiness factor? And again, does the answer depend on the type of primary care medical practice? 
Absolutely. You know, in my day to day, the ability to generate revenue directly is essential. So we're working mainly with independent medical practices. So these are small physician-owned groups that are not part of a larger hospital-owned health system. So while they're still part of an ACO and starting to see some of that value-based payment, uh, this is still only a small part of the funding structure for these practices. So we've created a financial model that allows for integrating pharmacy services that are budget-neutral. So what we tell practices when we're creating pharmacy positions is, I'm not going to make you money, but I won't lose you money either. Um, The value added for these folks really comes with that improved provider satisfaction, improved patient outcomes, as well as that patient experience, and then also thinking about increased access to care. So for a lot of these practices where I'm working primarily, that ability to have a reimbursement model is absolutely essential. But that might not be true in other places, you know, a larger healthcare system uh, where you can offset that cost across a, a larger budget. You might be able to offset that cost a little bit better. Sure. Courtney, is there additional research you would like to see done in this area? Yeah. You know, we started with asking the pharmacist, uh, you know, but I'd like to know what the doctors think. You know, let's go straight to the source here. So we're in the process of asking these similar questions to the physicians and other key stakeholders, key decision makers at these different practices to get a perspective on what they think would make a practice ready for embedded pharmacy services. We'd also like to go back and, and compare some of the practices that we've worked with. And so looking at the ones that were able to sustain a, a pharmacy uh, service in their practice versus the ones that weren't, you know, what is different between those practices and get some objective data to see what are some of those characteristics that set those practices apart. You know, I think that's some of the, the questions that we're trying to answer as well. Can you give us a sense of uh, the timeline that some of your additional research is on? When might we uh, be looking to see some of those results? We're in the process right now of asking the physician. So we're we're currently developing our um, questionnaire and some of those, again, some of those readiness statements, a similar process that we did for the pharmacist perspective. And then over the next coming year, we're hopefully going to be rolling this out to a lot of the physicians that we've worked with. Ideally, we'd actually have that to share and disseminate our answers probably the year afterwards. It'll be a little bit more of a regional assessment, you know, kind of going to our discussion earlier about regional differences, because we're doing this primarily in Western North Carolina. So we're going to start off here, just look with our physicians in Western North Carolina and see of those practices where we've tried to start clinical pharmacy services, what do they think is important? It'll be more of a localized population here, but definitely it'll give us some good insight into what people are thinking. Very good. Well, Courtney, I appreciate the time you've taken to discuss your paper. Uh, Your comments here help us uh, put it in perspective. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Courtney Wilson of the University of North Carolina Eshelman School of Pharmacy about her paper on the essential factors that demonstrate readiness of primary care practices for clinical pharmacy services. For AJHP Voices, this is William Zelmer. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, 
please visit www.ajhp.org.